welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 35, recorded on August 13th, 2019. The Cloud Pod to appear at intersect.aws. Hey, good evening, guys. How's it going? It's good, Justin. I had a long night staying up looking for the meteorites last night and didn't see anything at all. But apart from that, oh. it's going well. It's sort of like my, my trip to Iceland to see the Northern Lights today. I didn't get to see. <laughs> so oh. I, understand, I understand completely how that works. <laughs> I heard Alaska was a pretty good place to go, get like an Alaskan cruise from someplace, but it's, uh, it's on the roadmap. Well, Iceland's beautiful, though. I, I mean, definitely go to Iceland. That was that was our trip last year, and it was it was awesome. Even though we didn't see the Northern Lights, yeah, I highly okay. recommend Iceland. So, well, good. Well, we have a, another action-packed week of news today. Uh, I know we had a fantastic episode last time with Josh Stella from Fugue, and uh, their you know Capital One news continues to uh, you know light up the tech industry. So, uh, Amazon and Capital One are apparently facing a legal backlash after massive hack affects 106 million customers. Uh, so there's been a couple questions that have arisen around whether the technology providers that power companies such as Capital One should also be held responsible. And so this will be the first real lawsuit that tests uh, some of that assumption. Uh, another lawsuit was also filed against GitHub, uh, who claimed that, you know, because they're using GIST uh, to file some of the hack content that, you know, GitHub is responsible for allowing that to happen. And so uh, a lot of interesting challenges happening here in the space around Capital One and the breach and what that means to Amazon Web Services. It is interesting, though, because uh, one law professor was interviewed and said that uh, because Thompson uh, didn't actually do anything nefarious with the information obtained, that that could hurt some of these lawsuits. But it still will be interesting to see how they pan out, especially in the political climate that we see uh, against Amazon in general right now. Yeah, well, you're not going to go after Thompson. That's not going to get you uh, very much if you're trying to get a big class action lawsuit. Yeah, I guess nefarious is a, it's a kind of questionable term because uploading the data to a public gist is... Um kind of nefarious when anyone could have downloaded it but it, there certainly was no intent to like sell it to the mob or anything apparently so there was no financial gain uh to her in this transaction so i'm not sure the law really cares about that they, they you know they care about the actions not the intent yeah typically they care about you know harm and does it cause harm and the question will be because the data wasn't exposed it's not in you know the ivan pwned website um you know is it really exposed data it was definitely breached it was definitely accessed uh, but it wasn't sold. It wasn't used in anything, nef- you know, anything nefarious as they use in the comment. You know, I don't know how much harm was caused. I think that's what they're trying to refer to by nefarious. But it will be curious to see how these uh, go through the courts in the next uh, year or so and what actually ends up happening and how this challenges potentially the shared security model in a really fundamental way. Yeah. But I mean, so what's the what's the issue with GitHub? I mean, is it that they didn't respond quickly enough or is it that they, they sh- there's like some expectation that they scan everybody's private gists and, and um censor you basically wasn't there some regulation that was passed uh, recently about you know you had to be moderating and managing the content of your user community uh, especially for things like pornography and other things that are against your terms and if you don't have proof that you are protecting the community in some way that that can cause some issues um, this is one of the big reasons why tumblr you know who just got sold this week uh, to atomic uh you know basically was sold for three million dollars after it was bought for you know 11 billion <laughs> by yahoo years ago uh you know it was basically because they that transition was hard for them to go to fully moderating content and so I think that's the issue here. If it falls under the same legal jurisdiction, then maybe this is why it's an issue. But I, I don't really know for sure. I'm not a lawyer. We suffer the same problem working in the financial sector. It's very difficult to tell whether a data over the wire is 
you know, a legitimate transaction which, which should contain PII or financial information or whether it's it's data loss. And so it'd be even harder for GitHub, presumably, to, to scan all this data to decide, well, is this is it stolen data that looks like this or is it fake data? Is it mock data? It'd be impossible to tell. Although, having said that, there was an awful lot of data and and if I was GitHub, I would have raised some um, some flags when somebody uploads so much data. Well, how about the fact that Amazon allows their users a way of getting their keys, uh, their credentials, is potentially putting them at risk? I would argue against that. I'd say that the way the metadata service works, TV credentials, saves an awful lot of people from, from uh, you know having plain text passwords in config files. So I think we are better off for the metadata service than actually having to deliver these credentials insecurely to the VMs. Well, I mean, if they weren't in the metadata service, they would have been stored as plain text in memory somewhere, right? Right. So. <laughs> yeah, at least at least you get at least you get the credentials and they expire and and they're auditable. Whereas you've got some password that somebody knows and they leave the company. And keeping track of that is way harder than keeping track of temporary tokens. Totally, I know. It's that when you see these lawsuits, it just reminds you that people can sue anybody for anything. <laughs> Doesn't oh, matter yeah. if it makes sense. <laughs> Intersect.AWS Music Festival has uh, continued to release information, sort of silently out there. Uh, they've announced their headliners, which will include the Foo Fighters, Casey Musgraves, Beck, Anderson. Pack, and several more that I don't also know the name of and who they are. Anything about them? Because I'm old. Uh, tickets are apparently $260 for general admission. VIP will set you back uh, about double that, about $550. And VIP Plus uh, will set you back a cool $850. So if you're really into music, into the Foo Fighters, who is the one band I do know, well, then back, uh, you know, definitely go out and buy your ticket for the Friday and Saturday music festival post reinvent. I mean, that's kind of a bargain for a two day festival, at least the uh, general admission is. I, I have no idea. I'm not a music festival guy. So I'll take your word for it, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in VIP Plus, though. Yeah, it's pretty in line with, like, Outside Lands that I just got to see the uh, ticket prices on for my first time, even though I didn't go. I feel like I, I went to Outside Lands a few years ago and saw Elton John, again, dating my musical preferences. Uh, <laughs> I think I only paid for, like, a, like $120 a person to go for one day, or maybe it was $100 for the day. I don't even remember, but 260 felt steep to me when I saw the price and the acts, and that's just maybe because I'm not interested in going, and so it just was one more reason not to go. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a lights guy. I just I love going for the light show as as much as the music. Oh, I know. Well, and you know, a friend of the show Ryan used to be a sound guy and a light guy, and so he every time we're at a you know a keynote event, he and I are you know he's pointing out all the amazing lighting packages and all that. And so now even when I'm at a conference where Ryan's not at, I'm sending him photos of the cool gear so he sees it too. Yeah, <laughs> which is sort of funny. <laughs> yeah, you think you think you're gonna get tickets to go after the end of reinvent this year, or give it a miss for Intersect? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, you never say never, but at this exact moment, uh, no, <laughs> uh, especially if, the only band I'm really super excited about seeing is the Foo Fighters. Cause that's my, that's my generation of music, uh, and my, my grunge roots. But, uh, if they're on Saturday, I think I'm out by Saturday, but if it's Friday, maybe well, I got the way I see it is I've got probably three months to convince my wife to let me stay an extra two days. Or maybe I, maybe I invite her down for the, uh, yeah, I mean, festival. you can pay for her to join you for the festival too. So. I could. Yeah, just had to find babysitter with this. Well, if you're not going, <laughs> I, know, I know a guy who lives just down the street from me. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that's how that works. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's uh, move on to new news. Uh, so, just in general, cloud news: GitHub has uh, released a CI/CD service. Uh, this is an expansion of their beta GitHub Actions product, uh, which is a service they built and launched about ten months ago to provide workflow automation. 
Um, at launch, the GitHub team stressed that actions allowed for building pipelines, but that it was a lot more than that. And still, developers uh, have insisted to try to use it for CI/CD. And so GitHub has met the developers where they're at and is now making it available to you to build um, any type of application you want to from Node.js, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, C, and C++, .NET, Android, and iOS. Uh, these are all defined inside YAML files and is actually pretty interesting because it's directly integrated into the GitHub service as well as will be available in GitHub Enterprise Server if you're running GitHub on-premise. Uh, so this might be an interesting replacement for uh, things like Jenkins um, or different things. Um, one of the interesting features, though, they had is this feature called Matrix Builds, um, which lets you, for example, test three different versions of Node.js on Linux um, at the same time through a build pipeline, which is really kind of interesting. So um, some interesting ideas, some interesting concepts. Curious to see what people start doing with it um, over time. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, nobody wants to manage the Jenkins server. <laughs> it's kind of complicated to do and yeah. doesn't scale well. Uh, it's interesting, though, because uh, you know, there are a lot of big competitors for them, too, like CircleCI and CodeFresh and Travis. Um, and so you know, it's interesting because CircleCI was actually quoted in this article. Uh, GitHub has made a commitment to keeping their platform open to all partners, but only time will tell, CircleCI CEO Jim Rose said in a statement. Ultimately, developers are smart and will choose the best, most powerful tools available on the market. And we're confident that that's where CircleCI will continue to be. With more than nine years of data and experience on how teams move from idea to delivery, CircleCI is a leader in CICD, and we are confident we have the best solution for developers. So uh, even though they are a little bit spooked, they seem not to be afraid. Well, what are you going to say? Once you've invested the time in in, um, in a platform like CircleCI, you're probably not going to pivot to something like GitHub Actions unless there's a, a really good reason to do so. But it's pretty hard to compete with uh, with free. Yeah, exactly. that's my thought on it too. It's like, wow, this thing. is included in GitHub. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a big thing for me when you know I was reading through this article and I was like, well, this is really awesome for GitHub.com and. And then, you know, then they mentioned they're going to have this available in GitHub Enterprise Server, too, and it suddenly became much more interesting to me <laughs> very quickly. Of course, this also follows an announcement from Azure that about GitHub Actions for Azure. Uh, they will support uh, several initial actions on launch, including Azure Actions for logging and authentication with Azure subscription, uh, the Azure App Service Actions to deploy apps to Azure App Services, which is their version of Lambda, uh, and web apps and web app containers. Azure Container Actions, connect to container registries, including Docker Hub or Azure Container Registry, as well as deploy and push container images. And Azure K Kubernetes Actions, uh, connect and deploy to Kubernetes, including Azure Kubernetes Service uh, on Azure. So uh, that makes sense since GitHub is uh, owned by Microsoft and Azure. And so they uh, have this joint press release out there talking about that. It's definitely going to hurt some people. Uh having deploy built into the platform as well it does it does start making this interesting from a you know if you talk about azure devops um, this is interesting because now you're starting to conflict uh and overlap in much more places than you used to when you were just really competing with tfs it wasn't so bad because tfs still provided you a bunch of other things like project management um and the you know, ability to do build pipelines etc github has sort of done that with issues and some of those type of products and you know amazon's using it of course for their public roadmaps but uh, this is getting closer and closer to the things that azure devops does so that's a little bit interesting well also i mean if you're a github user historically obviously prior to the acquisition you were uh, on a platform on a, a neutral platform and so you know going with these tools is it going to be the trend that tools uh you know Azure is uh, far ahead with features. And then, you know, maybe then companies like Circle make a lot of sense. I think you know better than that. Azure is never going to be ahead in features. No, I mean integration features. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to assume that there'll be some kind of, that it'll be extensible and we can define our own actions. And if we really wanted to, we could we could deploy to whatever we wanted anywhere. I mean, you can, you can always deploy to Oracle. I don't recommend it. They just send their worst customers there. 
The Jedi contract has uh, been pushed back, guys. I, I know you're shocked, shocked by this news. Uh, DoD officials have announced that the winning bid for Jedi will be deferred until newly appointed Defense Secretary Mark Esper completes a review of the project. Uh, the evaluation is expected to take several weeks. Uh, Dana DZ, DoD CIO, said, We've got to get this right, so we are not going to rush to a decision. We're going to spend whatever time the evaluation team needs to spend to make sure we're picking the best technical solution at the right price with the right criteria. Uh, and the DOD also reiterated uh, there is still no plan to split the contract, um, which has been something that several Congress people have uh, requested or demanded be done with this deal. Um, so that's interesting and kind of disappointing, I'm sure, for Amazon, who was everyone says is uh, guaranteed to win this deal <laughs> in the last week or two. But uh, that decision will be delayed at least until probably uh, you know September. Yeah, on the bright side, we know they're not going to delay it long enough for Oracle to be... Uh... Uh, in the game. I mean, if they keep delaying it long enough, maybe they will be someday. <laughs> I don't know. The Register actually had a great article, uh, which they titled, Pentagon Makes a Case for Return of the Jedi. There's only one cloud biz that can do the job, and it starts with an A, or rhymes with loft. Uh, and they basically actually linked to an article or to a PowerPoint presentation the DOD put together for uh, congressmen and for the president, etc. Uh, which, if you look at the PowerPoint, the first five slides look exactly like every slide I've ever written uh, to convince my management to move to the cloud, uh, which is pretty funny. You know, things like why DOD needs the cloud, uh, the DOD challenge of episodic demand and difficulty with global scaling, <laughs> and, you know, the cloud solution, rapid surge of resources uh, when tactically relevant. Uh, then, of course, they you know talk about why they're using an enterprise cloud approach, etc. Uh, but really, the more interesting part of this um, is they have a myth versus reality section. Um, and the first myth is one that actually caught me the most uh, by surprise. Jedi is a 10 billion, 10 year sole source contract. Uh, and they responded back with the fact, Jedi is not a $10 billion contract. Jedi's guaranteed minimum is only $1 million. Jedi's total contract ceiling, if all option periods are exercised, is $10 billion, but DoD is under no obligation to place any orders beyond the $1 million minimum. Which actually makes perfect sense based on what you know from cloud technology and AWS and not wanting to spend more money than you need to. Um, it makes sense that this is a $1 million commitment with options based on usage to, of course, go up to as much as potentially $10 billion. So I understand this really well, but that was not really very clear uh, previously in communications about what this Jedi contract was going to be. Uh, but it makes perfect sense to me. And But in some, some context as well, because when we talked about Snapchat and their deal with AWS, that was a billion dollars. So that's a tenth of this contract, and they're not government-funded. They're funded by, well, actually, what are they funded by right now? Good luck. Uh, advertising revenue. <laughs> <laughs> well, wishes and good luck, maybe. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's uh, there's less of a commitment. It's uh, thousands of the commitment as that Snapchat yeah. already made. I noticed it wasn't written in crayon, though, so it probably wasn't intended for the president's consumption. I also noticed the use of all the icons. There were, there were no, no Google-looking icons, no Amazon-looking icons, and the color scheme was absolutely as neutral as they could possibly be. So there's no suspicion that there's some kind of bias towards anybody right now. This PowerPoint deck will not win any uh, awards for a presentation style because it is a <laughs> lot of words and a lot of text on many slides. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, they could, they could you know, easily come out now, even if they award this to Amazon, easily come out with V2 and award it award the next contract to microsoft and others and then just like that they uh, uh we are not single vendor i mean I, I you read this and it's like there's there's not there I, it's, it's hilarious that people are making a big deal about it well i mean this political climate everything's a big deal <laughs> yeah true but yeah so this will continue to develop we'll continue to report on it here at the cloud pod uh, as well although i think we're all kind of tired of jedi at this point <laughs> but we'll, we'll keep talking about it because i think it's it's important Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. 
These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, uh, I dropped a new article in that came in a little late today. Apparently, Apple is being sued for breach of contract, false advertising, and unfair business practices. Uh, and this is due to the fact that they are using Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud Platform services under its iCloud brand and failing to adequately disclose that relationship to customers, uh, which I find sort of hilarious. Uh, they talk about that, you know, the data is encrypted by Apple and stored on different cloud providers and they're stored in cri- encrypted blocks or encrypted chunks. Of, uh, but people are saying in this lawsuit that that is not true and that this is just a reseller agreement uh, and that you're putting your trust in Apple, but it's actually in AWS, Azure and Google. Um, this is actually interesting uh, as well from just a precedent perspective, because if it does go to court and does have some implications, it'd be interesting to see if this makes disclosure of cloud providers as a part of any new company or new product you want to sell to consumers. That'd be interesting. In a way, it's very similar to the Capital One Amazon situation where Amazon's um, at, at risk uh, in that lawsuit too. But um, is anyone really surprised that Apple have been using other cloud providers to provide their services? I mean, you just log into your internet router at home and you can see where your Apple devices are talking to and their Amazon endpoints. It shouldn't come to any surprise to people. I was more shocked that they're spending $10 million to build their own cloud because I don't really understand why they're doing that. But <laughs> yeah. I think they just keep using AWS or Azure and, and just you know play them against each other. But lawsuits like this probably make Apple more leery of that as well as you know their push for privacy and, and getting this data on their own platform allows them to control that end-to-end. We'll see where this one goes, but uh, interesting late development here this afternoon. It's a bit strange. I'm not, not even sure that this the case is going to go anywhere because I don't think anywhere in the in the small print, which I'm sure we've all read when you know logging into devices and signing up for Apple accounts, I don't think it says that they were going to provide the service themselves, you know, from their own hardware. What does that even mean? You know, what did they build their own data center, or are they trusting a co-location provider? Are exactly. They, yeah. Are they are they managing the boxes, or are they trusting a managed service provider? who's offering managed services on it. I mean, you can go all the way down the chain. Did they build their own chips yeah. and their own foundry, or are they trusting yeah. the chip manufacturer? Yeah, I mean, is it leased, or is, or is, it, is, it, is it owned? <laughs> That's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's like ambulance chasers. But yeah, I, I don't expect this one to go very far. I'll probably get thrown out of court, is my guess. Yeah, probably. All right, on to AWS news. Local mocking and testing support with uh, Amplify CLI is now available. The open source Amplify framework provides a set of libraries, user interface, UI components, and a command line interface to make it easier to adopt, add sophisticated cloud features to your web or mobile apps by provisioning backend resources using CloudFormation. Uh, last week, we mentioned that they added the predictions category to let you quickly add machine learning capabilities uh, to your web or mobile app. And now they're releasing a new mocking feature uh, so you can test your apps locally 100%. Uh, the first CLI mocking capabilities is the AppSync GraphQL APIs, uh, including resolver mapping templates and storage backed by Amazon DynamoDB. Uh, AWS Lambda functions invoked directly or as resolvers of a GraphQL API. Uh, the S3 service, and then, of course, Amazon Cognito user pool for auth uh, to GraphQL. So it, overall, I continue not to really understand Amplify <laughs> as a product, but the amount of investment that Amazon's making is that they, they must feel this is a really serious product uh, in a lot of different ways and definitely something to keep an eye on. 
um, as it continued to develop features at a re- pretty rapid pace uh, for this platform. I do love local testing. We had a sprint planning meeting today, somewhat late, but it was today nonetheless. And um, one of the items we spent the, the longest talking about was was um, about unit testing and how to market these Amazon services. And it's 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 a real chore. It's a real yeah. chore to do to do realistic testing and and mock things in a way that that. that makes you feel happy that it's a good test at the end of the day. Uh, I think what I would really like to see out of this whole thing is that the uh, the cloud providers, Amazon specifically, because they're my go-to right now, that that they provide their own marketing service for the services that they offer. So you still make, you know, you still reach out to the the mock endpoint or something, but you could you could configure it with the responses you want. They could provide a mocking service. It would be fantastic. That's a great idea. That should be a prediction for reInvent. <laughs> I'll tweet it to the uh, to the Amazon wishlist and see we'll see what yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, AWS Lake Formation, uh, not to be confused with uh, Lake Formation without a space, uh, is now generally available uh, at reInvent. Of course, they announced the preview of AWS Lake Formation, a service that makes it easy to ingest, clean, catalog, transform, and secure your data and make it available for analytics or machine learning. Uh, this is a centralized console uh, to make it easy. Of course, it works with your data in S3, because uh, what else would you do? And you can easily deduplicate your data using Glue ML. Uh, the product includes now several blueprints to make it easy as clicking a few buttons in the console to get you started with uh, very common data lake methods and architectures uh, to make it easy to get to big data and machine learning. So if you haven't started uh, building your data lake and you are looking to do that, lake formation is a fantastic choice. I, c- I kind of wonder, like, is, is there some overlap between this and Athena, though? If your data is already in S3, is it... Is it uh... Is it a more permanent thing that you're going to deploy with Lake Formation, or is it really just a different set of, of actions you can do on the data? Well, this is really you know taking the data from your source systems and moving it into S3 in a, in a common data format style. Then you yeah then you use Athena to query that data. Um, this really is how you get it to the data lake and, and how you build that data lake structure so that Athena can perform um, reliably and efficiently. Ah, I'm going to wait for all the side products that come out, all the analogies like you know glacier melting to form the lakes and that kind of thing, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> all the geological terms are going to come out in the next year or so. Oh my God, <laughs> we're going to have so much fun and lightning round. I look forward to the uh, global warming service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Amazon Aurora Multi Master is now G8. Uh, this was you know announced a while back and finally is G8. Uh, quite a while uh, actually i think almost a year since this was first announced this is a quiet announcement but it has a big impact to some customers you can now create multiple read write databases across availability zones in a single region this helps with super uptime sensitive applications to achieve continuous write availability throughout instance failures uh, they also wrote a very detailed blog post if you're using mysql uh, that gives you very prescriptive guidance on how to potentially implement this architecture uh, which we will link to in the show notes uh, but I'm glad to see Aurora Multimaster finally making it out of beta. Uh, it's been there for quite a while. Is it just for MySQL, or are they going to support it for Postgres too? It's kind of unclear. They mentioned Postgres in the in the release, but I'm not sure if you get MultiMass for Postgres. Uh, I don't believe so yet. Uh, I think it's coming next. Oh, I guess they were just comparing the the throughput to standard Postgres. Okay, well, that's fair enough. I'm I'm anxiously awaiting. Multimaster for Postgres, and what I really like would be a distributed across regions multimaster database too. Yeah, I'm still hoping for the multi-region solution as well. <laughs> That'd be super helpful. Yeah, but this is a multi-master databases. I feel like are things that everybody 
has always wanted and always will want. I mean, it's definitely something to be careful with, too, though, because everyone always wants them. And then when you get them and you start dealing with conflict resolution and all these other things, uh, you suddenly realize that you've bitten off a lot. So it yeah. definitely, or uh, you know, make sure you architect these things properly as it's a big deal if you do it wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a price to pay for, de- for deploying a multi-master system versus having a single master of many readers. But... Um, I, I compare something like this, which we can deploy the press of a button, to having to do multi-master with MySQL, uh, you know, bash scripts Ugh. years ago. I mean, I, I, I say no more. This is, this, I'm very happy. <laughs> uh, Amazon is releasing the preview of the new AWS tools for PowerShell. Uh, of course, in 2012, AWS released their first version of AWS tools for PowerShell, containing over 500 commandlets and supporting about 20 services. In the years since, it has grown to include 6,000 commandlets and supports 160 plus services, uh, plus additional modules for PowerShell 6, which was released. Uh, of course, uh, this was has some downsides. Uh, they apparently have, takes about 25 seconds to import uh, the PowerShell module for AWS, uh, and that is causing uh, workloads issues, especially in Lambda functions, where you only have about uh, 30 seconds before the Lambda times out. <laughs> Uh, so if you're importing your PowerShell script, that becomes a bit of a problem. Uh, as well as there's some other breaking changes that had them do some workarounds that were sort of unpleasant, uh, things that broke tab completion for commandlet names, etc. And so to address these issues, the team has released a new set of modules to the PowerShell gallery. In the preview release, each AWS service gets its own PowerShell module, all depending on a common shared module called aws.tools.common. And this is similar to the process they take with the AWS SDK for .NET on uh, NuGet. Uh, this improves shell startup times from 25 seconds to uh, 1 to 2 seconds. Uh, and it follows a pretty straightforward naming convention, uh, aws.tools.ec2 uh, or tools.s3, for example. Uh, they also have produced uh, some additional changes to support mandatory parameters, uh, which has been apparently a long-requested feature. Uh, and they are deprecating some of the more legacy commandlets, including HSM, ELB, uh, CloudWatch Events, and Kinesis Analytics, because uh, those have all been replaced by new versions of uh, HSM, ELB, uh, V2 versions, as well as uh, CloudWatch Events. Apparently, they're favoring EventBridge for... Uh, which is actually an interesting uh, choice. Uh, they have no immediate plans to deprecate or stop development on the old module right away, but uh, do expect it to be deprecated sometime in the next few years. Cool. I've never really been a big PowerShell person, but I kind of figured that the Windows users will be used to 25-second startup times. <laughs> well, they well, especially 15. if they're using Windows containers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they got 15 minutes to wait. What are they going to do while well, they're waiting for their instance to come up? Plenty of time. Uh, AWS set functions have added support for nested workflows. Uh, so this allows you to now orchestrate more complex processes by composing modular reusable workflows. Uh, these can be things like uh, human approval steps, uh, automation for sending alerts, uh, and makes this very simple to set up. Uh, you can launch a nested workflow execution from a single workflow step, and there are no additional charges for starting a nested workflow beyond the uh, assets you are reaching out to with your step function. That's cool. I like step functions. I think it's, it's going to continue to grow and be more powerful. I'm still missing some features that we've asked for pretty much since they, they were announced, which is a, a real fan out and fan back in again. Right now, you have to know exactly how many um, how many children you expect to launch ahead of time. And then you have to wait for them all to all to finish, but uh, yeah, they're so close, so close to it being a fantastic uh, big data tool as well. Neat, yeah. I mean, the nesting you just you can imagine now entire enterprises being able to start building out libraries of of uh, workflows seems like there's tons of opportunity. There's a lot of duplication right now, especially if you have complex workflows where you you have to literally rerun um, common common tasks. Like if it's a wait for something to happen, you have to. 
you have to have that as a separate step many, many times replicated, but presumably with nested workflows, we can just define that once and then just call out to it, sub out to it, and then come back again. So yeah, I think it's still a bit difficult to use. I'm not sure that they have the, the development tools really well nailed down yet for step functions, but it's definitely getting well, I mean, they did add that ability to insert a break operation between step functions now, which is super handy. So they're definitely, you know, building new things into step functions and making it more powerful. So that, those PFRs that we have out for different things, I expect them to kind of get resolved sometime in the next six to 12 months, if I were to guess. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that they add um, event triggers, for, uh, many more event triggers to step functions as well. So, so pretty much anything we make an API call to, to do, we should be able to pass it a callback to a step function and say, let me know when you're done, instead of sticking around and waiting. Yeah, that'd be super nice. Uh, there are new Amazon training courses for uh, Amazon Partner Network partners to better help their customers. Uh, the three partner courses are AWS Solutions Training for Partners for SAP on AWS, uh, AWS Cloud Economics, and VMware on AWS Cloud. Now, I find it hilarious that APM partners need to be taught how to better help their customers, which is the whole point of a partner. <laughs> but uh, nice to know that they are continuing to update this content, and if you're doing SAP or VMware, uh, your partners are freshly trained. And good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> You think it's more about uh, standardizing the message across partners, or oh, for sure. I mean, there's all there's all kinds of partners out there, the small boutique partners to massive enterprise scale partners with you know millions of people. So any any time you can get level setting, I think it's important. Yeah, I think a lot of these are are pretty basic stuff, but uh, the space is so new. I think a lot of partners, people who want to get into the space, are starting from ground zero, and so this is great. Make sure that yeah, they're level set a bit. Um, yeah, but uh, hopefully they've been around a little bit longer. These are very strategic uh, training classes as well. You know, SAP on AWS, with SAP kind of abandoning their cloud offering solutions. There's a ton of SAP partners who are trying to now come over and sell Amazon services to be able to run HANA better. Uh, you know, VMware on AWS, this is a huge area as well that Amazon's trying to push, you know, VMware customers to move to VMware on AWS to accelerate migration to cloud. And then, of course, cloud economics is just good business practice in general. So these three being updated, they have some ulterior motives to them, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, and they're very targeted at a very specific type of partner who's on the legacy on-prem side on SAP or VMware. Yep. Uh, but, you know, overall, it's still good good training. Yeah, and I guess going back to the Windows PowerShell tools as well, I'm sure that's an enabler for, for moving more Windows workloads more easily, too. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Amazon Recognition uh, can now detect violence, weapons, and self-injury in images and videos, and it improves accuracy for nudity detection. Uh, so these disturbing themes such as blood, wounds, weapons, self-injury, corpses, and more uh, can now be used uh, in your recognition stuff, as well as uh, explicit identity of nudity and suggestive content with a 68% lower false positive rating and a 36% lower false negative rate on average. Additional recognition now supports detection of new categories of adult content, including such things as unsafe anime or illustrated content, adult toys, and sheer clothing. Uh, so these are great features if you are running a content website on top of AWS that you need to be filtering uh, for things that are not so great for your community. Other uh, things you could say about this, which we can't say about this. <laughs> 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 There's a very fine line. Thanks, Apple. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> it makes sense that the, the violence, weapons, and self-entry thing. Like it's, it makes sense for like prison monitoring, uh, detention centers, things like that. And that, that kind of brings brings some other news to light, which was that um, Whole Foods employees are petitioning Amazon to stop doing work with Palantir, presumably Palantir, are either customers or partners with this kind of technology um, for the military contract work they do, or the, the uh, so not military contract work for the. Um, Inland security contract work. 
I mean, I, I'm hoping that there's not a lot of explicit nudity in the uh, DHS workloads, but <laughs> you never know, I guess. You never know. There are some things that you can see, like self-injury, um, some of these other things around violence. Uh, I can definitely see those being important for this type of workloads. Yeah, if only they'd announced Amazon Suicide Watch just a couple of weeks earlier. Ooh, ooh too soon. Well, speaking of uh, you know nudity, you know what's really great is bare metal. And Amazon is releasing <laughs> two new bare metal instances. Oh, that should have been lightning round. You get the tiebreaker. <laughs> Ooh, change the rules now. I'm not sure about that. Oh, I, I see. Bite my shiny uh, metal ass. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. All right. Enough, enough, children. Enough, children. <laughs> All right, the two uh, the two new bare metal instances are the C5N and the I3EN. The I3EN instance offers up to 60 terabytes of low latency NVMe SSD disk and a 50% lower cost per gigabyte uh, over I3 instances. Uh, they all leverage the Intel Xeon scalable processor from Skylake. The C5N instance uh, are powered by the three gigahertz Xeon scalable processors and provide support for the Intel Advanced Vector Accessions or AVS-512 instruction set. Uh, they both support 100 gigabit networking, and the pricing for a C5N bare metal server is $2,886 per month in US East 1 with Lytics, and the I3EN metal is $8,064.96 uh, per month in US East 1 with Linux. Uh, so if you're using Windows, uh, quadruple those numbers. Uh, but uh, for Linux, not a bad deal for this type of uh, compute power and data. Yeah, the, the low latency store on basically um, inbox storage, uh, the pricing for those workloads has always been tough to swallow. And so I literally now want to go back to a few projects that I've scoped and help people do budget on and, and redo it with these instance sizes. The NVMe stuff is, you know, it, it was still pretty new up until a few years ago. And so it's coming down in price dramatically and probably will continue to for the next year or two. Um, so definitely, I expect to see these prices continue to drop and more powerful instances coming out as Intel uh, gets their chip fabs back up online after all of their fun, and then the Epic processors, et cetera, coming out as well. You should start not, not quoting things by the month because people don't rent servers by the month anymore. They scale up and scale down in, in minutes or hours. So I think it should be interesting to compare these prices to you know how much how much does Lambda cost versus how much does it cost to run our workload on a dedicated server like this per second. And I think the $8,000 a month was was less than... I think it's less than a half a cent per second. That's an awful lot of work you can do on, yeah. a, on, a, on a box that size. It, it's hard to come up with a me- you know we could talk about it per minute, but then that's you know per hour or even per, per uh, even per core per month or something like that. Yeah, so, so I mean I I, I just kind of always settled on the per month because it's an easy number to understand. But uh, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. There's there's definitely other workloads that make the a monthly number doesn't make sense. Uh, but these i3 metals or metal servers in general do take a little while to provision, so they're not something you can just like spin up really quickly and, and spin duck down. So what if it's like automation with people and they rush somebody rushes into the data center, flicks <laughs> a switch someplace or plugs something in? <laughs> I don't think it's it's not that slow, <laughs> but it's it's definitely not. I mean, anytime you're doing a dedicated host of this size, uh, they take a little bit to provision. Uh, you can now use AWS Systems Manager to resolve operational issues with your .NET and Microsoft SQL Server applications. Uh, so AWS Systems Manager now integrates the CloudWatch App Insights, uh, is what that translates to. Uh, you can now quickly resolve products impacting or products and services impacting your application health, and you can use Ops Center to now pull this data in directly from CloudWatch App Insights centrally into Ops Center and Systems Manager automation uh, capabilities. Uh, so this is a very nice way to start doing some automation and some different systems, uh, and will help simplify your operation 
operational workload if you're running .NET and SQL Server. I mean, this and every other operational issue that you might have, because with Systems Manager, you can you can run whatever you like. Is this the first of thousands of, of things? You know, use Systems Manager to do something else, something else, something else. I, I do feel like this, I, mean, I think we talked about this in previous shows, but the, the Systems Manager, the Ops Center, the Cloud Cost Optimizer, the CloudWatch App Insight, like there's a lot of really great, powerful tools here that they have really you know, messed up the marketing on by naming them the way they have. And I think they're really hard to discover on your own without knowing it exists. And this is where a partner like Foghorn comes into play and they can tell you these things exist out there and you can use them and build new solutions out of them. But they really, you know, this is really an area I think Amazon really needs to take a hard look and say, you know, we really messed up this messaging and we really need to clean it up. I think maybe the important part of the sentence isn't the systems manager end of the sentence. It's operational issues with .NET and Microsoft SQL Server. Yeah, it's it's sure. it's definitely a dig at dig at the reliability perhaps of those products and um, and I who can blame them with the changing licensing terms recently it's uh, it's it's like a cutthroat situation right now. It's also you know I think it's part of the part of uh, the uh, you know the uh, the way Amazon is structured. I mean we get to see all of these wonderful services that are really grassroots, ground up, um, built from small teams uh, who are who are following. Who knows what you know some uh, some specific customer that they ran into, and um, we get we get this great uh, flourishing of lots of stuff. Um, but I think that just always the downside of that model is that you don't have that sort of enterprise architecture top down view uh, until later. And so yeah, hopefully you know these all these tools get integrated into something that makes sense for different you know different. Uh, individuals at companies who need to do a job, you know, and, and really top down focus on delivering business value by integrating them together. Uh, you'd almost see starting to break up the console by personas in some ways, right? Like, you know, this is the persona yeah. for an SRE team versus this is the persona mm-hmm. for a developer team. The needs are different, though. The requirements are different. The, the capabilities are slightly different. So I can see there's some opportunities for that, but it would take someone who owns that overall strategy and a GM who owns these systems manager tools to really kind of start thinking that through. And I just don't think someone's doing that yet. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's like, that's the cost of the benefits that we get for this sort of loose, loosey goosey, uh, tons of small teams running with their own projects. But I mean, the benefit is we get all these cool new tools all the time. As much as I poke fun at, the, at this headline and everything, placing manual logging into servers to make changes and install patches and to fix things when there are problems in in this new world where we don't have production access to servers. I mean, DBAs are having a really hard time automating some of the tasks they used to do. So it, it makes sense um, to, to use system manager or to leverage system manager to, to do some of that work. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. And I think we've seen more and more white papers and case studies and things coming out of Emerson Professional Services, which have, which are sort of not in themselves AWS products, but are, you know, get you started kind of copy and paste the code into a into a lambda function and all of a sudden you can create security groups or do some other kind of magic so i, I like these examples because it can often be difficult to like really understand what you can do with these tools they're a bit abstract sometimes well uh speaking of abstract concepts uh the amazon ec2 spot instances have a new allocation strategy called capacity optimized allocations uh, capacity optimized allocations automatically makes the most efficient use of available spare capacity in your spot fleet while still taking advantage of the steep discounts offered by spot instances. 
Uh, of course, one of the best practices in using a spot fleet is to use multiple instance types. Uh, this mitigates the risk of spot market fluctuations. Uh, the capacity optimized launch strategy launches spot instances into the most available pools by looking at real-time capacity data and predicting which are the most available and will be the most available over time. So uh, this is a nice uh, machine learning use case for spot fleets and for spot instance uh, launching. And this also supports, you know, it's very focused on EC2. Uh, spot, but it also supports um, auto scaling groups as well as um, some other container auto scaling too. Um, so they are expanding this out to be more than just spot instances. But the uh, headline was targeted that way. Yeah, well, as as a chief cynic for the cloud pod, I also have to say that by di- directing more people to use the the spot instances with with more capacity, you actually alter the market in a way which will increase prices of the spot fleet, not decrease price of the spot fleet. Exactly. But that's, that's a win for Amazon. So Amazon would love for the spot fleet to be used more often because that's capacity <laughs> that they were just throwing away before. So in their mind, getting more adoption of spot fleet and offering discounts on it is actually better because it was just wasted capacity they weren't making any money on before. Yeah, but before you could have had a, you, you could have had the server from the, the, the biggest pool for much less. But now they're going to drive people to consume the biggest pools first. It will it will shift the price up slightly. So yeah, oh, definitely definitely good sure. for Amazon. Maybe maybe not quite so good for for us, but I guess you know if you're getting a 70, 80, 90% saving anyway, then uh, you know, who uh, Yeah, but I mean at the same time it's getting easier to benefit from it. So uh, the easier it is to benefit from spot, the more workloads we could use uh for spot, but then uh the higher the price is going to go because more people have an easier time using it. So uh I I mean, I've I've been Although I've been completely wrong on this, but I've been predicting the convergence of spot and on-demand, or spot and at least reserve, but spot and on-demand, just that's the direction they're going to go. It's going to get easier and easier with tools to use spot, and that's going to drive the price up to maybe the point it's only a 10% discount because pretty much you could run prod on it. That's that's a really interesting point. I think the convergence of those two would be kind of cool. But I guess that when I read the article, I noticed that the the, the use case they're selling is that if you if you uh, rent service from those bigger pools, they're less likely to be shut down so quickly. So you could run slightly longer running workloads than you may otherwise be able to do. And likewise, there's less overhead to cover with on-demand, which means on-demand price, it could drive on-demand prices down. Yeah. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Mm, I would love to see more on-demand price cuts. <laughs> Right after networking price cuts. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to uh, our friends over at Google. Uh, Cloud IAP, uh, which enables context-aware access to VMs via SSH and RDP without a Bastion host, is now generally available. Uh, this was a beta release, uh, of course, at Google Next. Uh, and this allows you to protect SSH and RDP access to virtual machines without the need for that Bastion, as I mentioned. Uh, Context-aware access allows you to define and enforce granular access policies for apps and infrastructures based on a user's identity and the context of their request. Uh, VMs protected by Cloud IAP don't require any changes and no separate infrastructure is required. Uh, You simply configure IAP and access is automatically protected with a planet-scale load balancer complete with a DDoS protection, TLS termination, and context-aware access controls. Uh, Palo Alto Networks is a partner on this product, uh, and they have this to say. Uh, Karen Gupta, SVP of Application Framework. Customers trust us with their data, so keeping it secure is our number one goal. Context-aware access in combination with Palo Alto Network's endpoint protection enables us to control access to our infrastructure deployed in GCP following zero trust principles, helping to secure our public cloud workloads while making our work easier and keeping our costs low. Planet scale, that's that's an interesting term. It's kind of like the World Series of, of, of Baseball. 
<laughs> when, <laughs> when, when only American teams or maybe Canadian teams compete. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's in, what interests me is that Palo Alto is, isn't driving this. They're a part, they're, they're, I guess they're a partner and a, and a consumer of it, but uh, Google seems to be really leading the way in this. And I, I kind of hope that, that this kind of access control becomes um, like an open standard that anyone could adopt. I think it would be um, really be useful for security everywhere. Well, I do. I do feel like that's kind of what they've done with you know announcing the whole Beyond Corp right. um, initiative. Is that they're trying to get other partners like Palo Alto on board. They're trying to get people to do these things uh, and really think about this differently. And Palo Alto is a partner with them because they have endpoint protection, um, which allows them to kind of get you more that granular from the endpoint being a you know device that you trust all the way to your server um, in a secure manner with your identity and your contacts. So I think that's what they're trying to say here and why they're a partner. But um, overall, it's it's a really great uh, technology and tool. And tool. One of the things I was thinking about, uh, which this actually addresses too, is that you know for a database admin, um, accessing SQL with like database uh, administration tools, you know, sometimes require a fixed port, and so this actually supports that as well and port forwarding of a of a fixed TCP port uh, from your desktop. So you can use your SQL Studio, uh, you can use Toad or any of the other tools that you might use for SQL. Um, or Oracle or whatever to manage it uh, all through that fixed TCP port. So that's actually pretty nice too. Um, so not just SSH and uh, RDP in this announcement. Oh, I'd like to look into, into this black box, which is the access context manager, because you know, the context of requests is very difficult. In a, if you're making RESTful queries, for example, there, there is no context. That's the whole point of it. Um, so I'm kind of curious as to what, how, how you implement the context uh, manager. So I'm gonna, I'll look into that. I'll report back. We look forward to your report. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Google is also expanding virtual machine types to drive improve, improve performance and efficiency. Uh, of course, in April, they announced some expanded VM offerings, and now they're releasing even more uh, with a beta release of the new general purpose VM with improved price performance ratios. The general available of the compute optimized VMs and a new memory optimized VM now in beta. Uh, the general purpose VMs are now built with a second generation Xeon scalable processor N2 with 20% price performance improvements and 25% more memory per vCPU compared to the N1 uh, class. The N2 runs at a 2.8 gigahertz, uh, gigahertz base frequency and a 3.4 gigahertz sustained all-core turbo uh, configuration. You can configure the N2 instances from two vCPUs all the way up to 80 and from 1 gig to 640 gigs of memory and they offer an 8 gig to vcpu ratio at the max configuration the uh, new compute optimized vms that are in beta uh or sorry our g or sorry those are the ga ones uh those are the new c2 instance types available in four regions including u.s central one europe west four asia northeast one and asia east one uh and their customer at the burger group dan speck said after moving one of our customers to google compute engine c2 vms we saw a 40 percent improvement in performance while using less hardware one of the critical jobs process took 82% less time to complete at 40 to 42% less cost. Uh, so that's pretty impressive. And then the uh, memory optimized VMs, which are in beta, are the new M2 instance now with both 6 terabyte and 12 terabyte configurations uh, designed to run the largest SAP HANA databases you can do. Uh, and these also support the live migration and committed use discounts uh, in the M2 class. So that's a pretty nice uh, server to use for these workloads. Cool. I'm, I'm not quite sure how the 82% less time ties in with the 40% increase in, in performance. So I think some of those some of those numbers may be a little bit fudged there, but um, well, as all good marketing people do. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how long it's going to be before we really stop caring about the base frequencies and the and the turbo frequencies and everything else. How long is it going to be? Before you know, I was I'm there, just dude. thinking of. I'm already there. Yeah. <laughs> as I was writing about this earlier, actually, I was thinking about the same story because I, I felt like we were we we're sort of moving into a world maybe driven by Apple. 
um, where we didn't really care about CPU performance and we didn't really care about gigahertz and clock speeds and all that. But I feel like because Intel has not been able to deliver the next uh, micrometer and size uh, chips that their their strategy is meant to be marketing, you know, core performance and core performance per gigahertz. And I think that's why we're seeing a really big pushback into this, these metrics like this. But that's pure speculation on my side, and I have no idea why otherwise. But it, it definitely feels like we are talking about this a lot more than we, ha- we have in the last few years. Uh, back to early 20, 2012, 2013 days where this was really important. It even goes back further than that. I think it goes back to when AMD really started becoming a competitor for Intel and um, AMD didn't you know they didn't have the same cpu instruction pipeline and so they get more instructions per per gigahertz but intel seems to be stuck on this look look how our base frequencies are still higher than anybody else's yeah for sure i mean they're definitely getting a run for their money with the epic processors uh, that amd has released and you know even google's is now according to this next article going with uh epic for both, not only google infrastructure but also bringing that to the cloud as well uh you know amd and google apparently have had a long history of collaboration over the years uh, and their millionth server built in 2008 was based on an amd chip uh they are going to be providing new vms with the second gen amd epic processors uh and these are the largest general purpose vms that they have ever offered on google cloud uh they'll be available on a 2.25 gigahertz base frequency a 2.7 gigahertz all-core turbo and a 3.3 gigahertz single core turbo frequency oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and these epic processors support two vcpus and scale up to as many as 200 vcpus so these are big boxes uh, yeah uh, with a lot of compute capacity yeah i'd like to see some actual you know um, benchmarking of workloads not you know it's the same workload run me the same workload twice both servers how, how does the 2.7 gigahertz all core turbo compare with the uh with the intel's 3.4 well i mean they'll only use it in the context of they'll attack uh, you know amazon or azure's comparable server running on intel that's how they'll do that right they won't, they won't actually compare it on their cloud why would they do such a thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean really when it comes down to it you've got the number of cores the speed the instructions per second and that, you know nobody cares about that what they care about is if i'm paying per second for something how much is it going to cost to get my stuff done yeah i do really like this uh amd epic branding so so much more fun than the xeon branding i, I give them props for that it's, it's epic <laughs> it's epic it's so epic that azure even is getting in on it uh so moving on to azure news uh azure is announcing a new amd epic based virtual machine as well and so this is uh announcing this on the second generation of their HP series virtual machines, the HBV2, which they designed for HPC workloads, uh, they will be leveraging the Epic 7002 processor, uh, and they don't have any real hard deadlines yet on this one yet, but uh, they'll also be doing an AMD 7002 processors and Radeon Instinct GPUs for their Azure virtual desktop product, as well as a couple of new dedicated VM options, including the DAV3 and the EAV3 VM uh, will use the AMD Epic 7452 uh, processor. So apparently the uh, 7002 is 120 C- vCPUs over, uh, which is an over 100% increase in HPC workloads like fluid dynamics and crash test anal- analysis. And this will be the first cloud's first deployment of 200 gigabit InfiniBand, which I didn't know InfiniBand was still a thing, but apparently it is at 200 gigabit speed uh, using Epic's support for the PCIe 4.0 capability. And the HBV2 HPC uh, virtual machine scale set will go up to 36,000 cores for an MPI workload, which is uh, pretty massive. And then for those DV3 and EV3 uh, dedicated hosts, they will do up to 64 CPUs, 256 gig of RAM, and 1,600 gigs of SSD-based temporary storage in the DV3. And the EV3 will have 64 vCPUs, 432 gigs of RAM, and 1,600 gigs of SSD based temporary storage so uh, everyone's getting on the epic train and we should all get on the epic train too 
Azure is announcing better security with enhanced access control experience in Azure files. Uh, and this is to make lift and shift easier. Azure is now making GA uh, Azure Active Directory domain services authentication for Azure files. Uh, by integrating this into Azure AD uh, directory services, you can mount your Azure file share over SMB with AD credentials uh, and NTFS ACLs uh, enforced. Uh, the seamlessly integrates with your Windows File Explorer for permissions assignments. And there are new built-in role-based access controls to simplify share-level access management. Now, I <laughs> left this in here <laughs> because I was mostly shocked that they didn't do this already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hello, Windows 2000. Uh, we, we are 19 years later, almost 20 years later, and now the Azure Cloud supports AD authentication for file shares. That's And NTFS ACLs. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe this, this, thing, this announcement kind of travels through the time warp or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of, some of the Azure announcements do feel that way, uh, much like this next one, uh, which is disaster recovery <laughs> of Azure Disk Encryption V2 enable virtual machines. Uh, so apparently Azure Site Recovery now supports disaster recovery uh, enable virtual machines without the need of an Azure Active Directory. Uh, so apparently previously when you enabled a VM with encryption for DR, you had to have an Azure Active Directory in both regions. Uh, and this required all disk encryption keys and secrets uh, to be available. Now what they're doing is they're enabling replication of your VM for DR with all required disk encryption keys and secrets are copied from the source region to the target region in the user context, which is where I want my encryption keys, is in the user context. Uh, if the user managing DR does not have the appropriate permissions, the user can hand over the ready-to-use script to the security administrator to copy the keys and secrets and proceed with the configuration. Uh, the feature only supports Windows VMs today, uh, but will be supporting Linux here in the next few weeks. Uh, and this one, while I appreciate what they're trying to do here, I don't know that I totally agree with putting encryption keys in user context or not having them managed by an HSM for DR. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad to see there's options. Well, it's because I mean, if you've got AD, then the BitLocker keys are stored in the Active Directory. So if you don't, if you're not attached to the AD, then the, the keys are on the local machine. And um, you know, if you're really going to be doing DR of a Windows environment, you you really kind of need the domain. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just the reality is you should have some form of the Azure uh, AD in the other region if that's what you're really going to do, in my opinion. Well, sure. I mean, half your security controls, if not more, are going to be pushed down in group policies from AD. So if, yeah, running a, running a VM that's not attached to a directory in Azure seems like a, a weird thing to do. Can't they just email me the keys? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the user context is better than the email context for the keys, let's be clear. Yeah. <laughs> You just got to call them up and pretend to be uh, pretend to be an employee. You know, hey, uh, I locked myself out. Can you? Can you? Yeah. <laughs> Not like Google. If you lose your keys for Google, it's. it's uh, I tried to log into my my Gmail account earlier from a new browser. Typed the password. Said it was wrong. So it wants the phone number. Put the phone number in. Sends me a number. Number didn't work. Offers to send an email to my wife's email address, and it tries to do a bunch of other stuff. In the end, I just gave up. But yeah, it's. Uh, don't use your Google password. <laughs> Ah, so that, ex that explains your new your new email address. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for new news this week. Uh, let's turn it over to Peter for the lightning round. Let's get going. Amazon RDS SQL Server now supports changing the server level collation. Nobody cares. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't ready. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and like I said, Amazon RDS SQL Server. Now supports changing the server level collation. This is this is you know you know who talks about collation SQL Server DBAs. Yeah. No one else talks about collation in any serious context. It, it cracks me up how big of a deal this is in SQL Server. And when you make it wrong, oh, it's painful. <laughs> so you're telling me this isn't coming out for Postgres in coming weeks? <laughs> That'll make a very interesting case study. But um, 
That's all. <laughs> well, I, I don't even get it. A case study, uppercase and lowercase, collation, oh, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Oh, dear me. Sorry. Oh, he's not. He's clearly not a SQL Server guy. That's, he's not. Right. I guess not. Or, or a Linux file system guy. <laughs> no, nah, it's, I mean, to be fair, collation is a, is a huge challenge. It, it is. Uh, and it, but in most databases, changing collation is not a big deal. In SQL Server, changing collation is a is a once a one time choice that you will pay for forever. Yeah, <laughs> format, reload the machine, deploy a new data center. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Amazon RDS for Oracle now supports new instance sizes, only costing you a kidney or a firstborn child. Oh, I was going to say non-existent. Is that is that a size? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon EC2 fleet now lets you set a maximum price for a fleet of instances. A feature only a CFO would love. <laughs> I can't imagine that's as good as it sounds. I mean, I'd like a fleet of thousands of machines for next to nothing, but I'm sure that's not what it's going to do for me. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be when you desperately need your system to auto scale, it's going to hit that limit and yes. say, sorry, you you're can't out of luck. have them. <laughs> Thank you for requesting it. EC2 Fleet also now lets you modify on demand target capacity. Let me add that to features I thought already existed yeah. for $500, Alex. Uh, Amazon SNS message filtering ad support for attribute key matching. So it's a complex notification service. There you go. <laughs> it's not simple anymore. CNS. <laughs> <laughs> Announcing a name change. No, this is pretty cool, though. This, this brings it more in line with things like RabbitMQ, where you can do filtering of the messages you care about receiving. So everyone, everyone can be a subscriber, but then you can say, but only send me messages that contain this particular bit of information. I wish they had this feature a couple of years ago, actually. It would have been really solved some some good problems for me. Amazon EMR now supports native EBS encryption. Which means the security people won, the big data people lost. <laughs> yes. Amazon recognition improves face analysis, including improved gender identity and emotions like happy, sad, angry, surprised, disgusted, calm, and confused. Sounds like the seven dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, I can't, I can't compete with that. I'll give a ding. I'll give, uh, yeah, we'll give you one there for sure. And new um, emotions, fear, and improved rage estimation accuracy. Oh, no, that's range. range. I thought it was rage. rage. <laughs> I thought it was rage. I'm like, this is so awesome if they know how much I'm raging right now. What if uh, they analyze all their, all their employees? What <laughs> rage estimation. Age range, age range. I mean, this one does feel a little, little awkward uh, right now in the days of uh, forced border <laughs> containment and knowing the DHS is a customer of this. This one doesn't feel so good. I'm be honest. Maybe not, but I think the, I think the gender identity thing is, is, is going to be interesting. Yeah, I definitely want to take this thing with me to the poker table. That's all I know. Oh yeah. <laughs> if only, if only Google glasses were still a thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, bring back the Google Glass. The, the glass holds her back. <laughs> Moving on, Amazon WorkDocs migration service now makes it easy to migrate your data to WorkDocs. Still waiting for the version that makes it easy to migrate back out of WorkDocs when I realized that was a bad choice. Oof. Test, definitely test before you migrate. And we've got lots of announcements for that go along with lake formation. Uh, EMR integration is in beta, supporting database table, column level access controls for Apache Spark. Athena is adding support for lake formation, uh, enabling fine-grained access control for databases, tables, and columns. And Redshift is supporting 
column level access control with lake formation. Which makes sense because those are all big data machines that would use data lakes. So I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Why they shouldn't have been one announcement, just part of the lake formation GA, I, I don't know. <laughs> but that's three more uh, new features they could release. So. Yeah, really. It's kind of cool, though. I think that, uh, it's, I mean, I like it when the product teams are working together on releases. The dam has broken and the, the lake formation is spilling out all over the place. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in Capital One's case, it's spilled right out to the hackers. Doubted <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gist. Uh, AWS has relaunched their developer series on EDX. Is it EDX or edX? I don't know. I'm never sure. I just read. I That's great, though. I, I, the more edX. training we get to developers, uh, the better off we are. I guess edX makes more sense. It's not edu. I mean, I, I don't. I'm... AWS has relaunched their developer series on edX. <laughs> <laughs> great. Developers need more training and more access to content like this. So I, I'm super happy about it. It's cool that they get get more training material. But in a way, it's not the developers that need to be the, the people convinced that AWS Cloud is is the place to go. Right. It's rarely the develop, developers making the decisions on things like that. So, I mean, great, it gets you started once once somebody's already made that decision. But I think they still need to work on their uh, in-the-door routine. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wonder how hard it would be for Amazon just to release their own LMS that you could sign up for to, you know, because like they're using Coursera, they're using edX, they're using... Uh, you know, YouTube and all these other things. And it's like, you know, do I really have to go hunt this down across five different platforms? So why can't you just centralize it into an LMS? They're not hard to build. Uh, super, super huge value for us. And I, I wish they would do that. Well, when they clean up their 20-year-old blog posts first, I'm sure they get to there. Which, by the way, the PowerShell modules we talked about earlier, those will be referencing the wrong ones forever. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon RDS has released Postgres uh, 12 Beta 2 to the database preview environment. They are they are convinced that they are going to ship this on time when 12 releases, aren't they? That <laughs> the embarrassment of Postgres 11 not being available for months after <laughs> you know, it was GA is uh, not going to be repeated. It's <laughs> clearly the answer here. Yep. Uh, Amazon DynamoDB now helps you monitor as you approach your account limits. This is actually super cool. So instead of having to go to an API and query that, I can just use DynamoDB to do that. That is, This is actually really cool, but not worthy of a show topic. It's <laughs> But uh, super, like, I, I'm super excited about what this could potentially open up uh, opportunity-wise, because now you can use Lambda functions, you can do all kinds of different things, which you could do with APIs too, but then you have to worry about auth, you have to worry about much other stuff. This is just a value in a database table. That's what I want. I want to know if they're doing it for API limits too, or if my warning on API limits is still that my console doesn't work any, all of a sudden. Oh, have you ever run into API limits? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I have, but no, I mean, like, will, they, the will cons- they give you that in DynamoDB? Probably not, because you won't be able to query DynamoDB because you're out of API limits. Oh, yeah, convert, exactly. So. <laughs> That's perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I really dislike these these account limits when, when you set a read and write con- concurrency for the Dynamo, but then you realize that you can't actually use them because somebody else in a different team maybe has got a busy Dynamo table elsewhere. It's that's ah, kind of annoying. It sort of oh, breaks no. the... Uh, I don't know, like the, the self-contained nature of the service. Yeah. It's not atomic anymore. Amazon Aurora with Postgres compatibility supports publishing Postgres log files to CloudWatch logs. I mean, you got to put them somewhere. I guess put it there. Yeah, it's cheap. Now, I think I tied all the support calls. Hey, can you get this out of the log file? <laughs> That's exactly yep. what this is. This is a yep. support case reducer right here. Yep. You can now purchase Red Hat Enterprise Linux with HA add-on via Azure Marketplace. I was sort of embarrassed that I had to look up what Red Hat Enterprise Linux with HA was. <laughs> I never heard of it and didn't care enough to know about it apparently previously. 
what is it exactly? Uh, it's basically how you make an HPC cluster with Red Hat. So it basically handles all of the uh, clustering capabilities that you would need to do HPC workloads. It's a use case that none of us in this room have, <laughs> but uh, someone out there does, and now you can buy it through Azure Marketplace. Okay. So if you wanted to choose the Windows Cloud to run HPC work... On Linux boxes. Yeah. Because... You know, of course, Azure is going to have the best capability for that, right? Yeah, so it uses a Pacemaker, which is a robust and powerful open source resource manager using highly available compute clusters uh, and is a key part of the high availability add-on for our Red Hat Linux. Uh, Pacemaker has been updated with performance improvements in the Azure fencing agent to significantly decrease Azure failover time, which greatly reduces customer downtime. Which, of course, you really don't want downtime in your HPC cluster. <laughs> no. The convoy only goes the speed of the slowest ship, so Azure being the least available cloud provider right now uh, this doesn't really do them any favors yeah they probably shouldn't try to calculate pi on this infrastructure should they i think so wasn't there some guy in indiana that wanted to mandate the pi the value of pi was like three or something so, something really weird <laughs> uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna find a link to that, that is. well I, I don't promise it in the show notes because every time i listen back to this thing and i'm like you mentioned i'm gonna put this in the show notes and i go look at the show notes you never put it in the show notes <laughs> all right I just, want, I just want somebody to comment and say hey you never put this in the show notes Lightning round is becoming a sloth round. I, I don't listen to it because I listen to the podcast the first day it drops and I go fix it for you almost every time. So that's why yeah, it well, hasn't happened. Thank you. <laughs> Introducing the new AWS co-branding guide. Oh, good. I'm so looking forward to the new guidelines for my new tattoo with AWS. Oh, there you go. Awesome. Dwarfs are taking it. Ah. Sorry, man. That was pretty good. All right. It's almost like I knew it was coming, the way I read them. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again, Peter, for running the lightning round. Uh, let me catch my breath and, and drink some water, because that was a long show. That was a long but, show. But uh, thanks again, and uh, hopefully next week's a little less news, because I think we'd all like a, a shorter episode next week. So. Yes. Yes, please. Well, thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your week, and we will talk next week here at the Cloud Pod. See you later. Bye-bye. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.